Love you guys. Take a seat or take a stand, you know, whatever. Your life. Um, quick announcement that I'm digging into teaching because it's too good. Well, we'll see. But this was on your seat because next week, uh, Ethos HV turns nine, which is crazy. Um, COVID really messed us up because I'm like, how are we nine? Because we took like a two-year hiatus. We'll pray through that. Maybe we're seven. I don't know. I think we're nine. We're turning nine. And uh, if you're newer here and you haven't been a part of our birthday Sunday, it's going to be cool, man. Next week is the week to bring friends, uh, your party hat, uh, your just celebratory self. So we're going to spend half of the day just reflecting and remembering where we've seen God in the last year. If you read through the Old Testament enough, you'll see God really cares that the people of God remember. Literally like, not a metaphor, that they slow down long enough to recall where God has shown his love, where he's shown his mighty hand, where he's shown his power. Like think about Joshua, the people are about to cross the Jordan River. God splits the waters, not the Exodus version, another version. God has a habit of just parting waters and the Israelites cross on dry land and then his instruction is take 12 stones, build an altar so that when your grandkids ask you, what are these stones about? You can tell them where God prevailed, where God delivered. So we're gonna use our birthday to do that. We're gonna reflect on some awesome things that we've seen God do in the last year. Which is hard for me as a pastor, man. It's always next thing, next thing, next thing. You know, we gotta reach the whole world. So we do not have time. Uh, so I'm trying to just obey the Lord. We're going to reflect and rejoice. And then uh, we're going to spend the next half of our day together next week storming Kroger, just straight up overwhelming Kroger on 21st, like logistically overwhelming them. We've already called their supervisor, manager, whatever, that's Luke Lowe's. He called them up, said, hey, we're coming. We're coming with heat. <laughs> like, get ready. Stock the shelves twice. And, uh, and that's not a joke. We have called them and let them know we're coming. We're going to have a U-Haul in the parking lot because... For our birthday, we don't get gifts, we give gifts away. We're giving every penny away to Aiken Elementary next Sunday. So everything given to Hillsborough Village next week goes to Aiken. The number one way for you to give next week is to come with us to the Ruby and then depart with us and go to Kroger and buy the groceries that we're gonna give you a list for. We'll have an Ethos team with a U-Haul in the parking lot receiving your groceries with joy. And then at one o'clock, Anyone is invited. We will gather at Aiken. We've got an assembly team ready to go, but the more the merrier. Um, we'll have a team at Aiken that is putting all of those food items in their pantry that goes to hunt over 100 families every single week and weekend, okay? So um, if you guys are, are down to celebrate and party hard, um, bring your most celebratory and generous selves. I would love to, I think last year, the year before, we stocked up Aiken for like six months worth of stuff. I mean, it was crazy. And I'm trying to make it six years. <laughs> I don't even want, want their classrooms to have room for their students anymore. I'm kidding. <laughs> They're like, hey, thanks. We can't use the school anymore. Uh, kidding. Uh, I'm just excited to see y'all. This is what happens. So take this card. If you're going to come to 1 p.m. thing, scan the QR just so we have a gauge on who all is coming to that thing. But the more the merrier. Bring friends. You guys get it? Clearly? Okay. I feel like we're kind of underselling the birthday thing. So really think about it this week and get excited. All right. Come and stay. Week five. Week four of the reading guide, but week five of the series. 
Um, let me give a quick overview. I'm, I'm trying to talk through the recap quicker every week so we have more time to do what this series is all about, which is to sit still and meditate and pray um, after a word from Scripture. So come and stay. Rooted in two passages of Scripture, John chapter 15, Jesus says, abide in me, remain in me, I'm the vine, you're the branches. In other words, just in a culture of come and go, where we're here sometimes and we're gone other times, Jesus' invitation is to come and stay. Come, be in my presence, and then after that, just, just be in my presence, and then just repeat that step as often as you possibly can. So it's just this invitation to be in the presence of God. Galatians 5, where John 15 says, abide in me and you'll bear fruit, Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is, and it lists out all these fruits. And so every week in this series, we're examining your fruit of the Spirit, and specifically, we're finding a story in Scripture where we see that fruit of the Spirit in God first and foremost. And the kind of the approach to this is, if we can meditate and receive from God the peace of God, our odds of being a people of peace go way up because he's the source of peace, plain and simple. We can't just reach down in us and find peace and then just be peace for the world. We actually need a God to bring peace. And so that's what we're doing. And kind of the mantra is living life with God, from God, and for God in that order. And you're going to hear us say that every week, so you're going to miss it. But if you would just write that down and make that a prayer point for your life. God, will you help me to live life with you, from you, and for you? Most of us are comfortable with the third one for you. God's invitation is to really think about the first two, because the third one is inevitable if you do the first two. If you're living with the Lord and living from his resource, from his spirit, it's already for him and his glory, and, and we're good to go. All right, let's get to it. This week, peace. Peace, okay. Thanks, Luke. He's on the pastoral team, always there to be a soft place to land. Um, one of the, I got to go to this teaching conference this week, heard a lot of incredible teachers, and one of the teachers I have a lot of respect for was doing a Q&A session. She got asked a question, and then she gave an answer that had nothing to do with the question. So if what I'm about to tell you feels random, that is exactly how it felt this week. She got asked a question, I'm not going to tell you what the question is, because it's nothing to do with the answer, and in her answer she said, what the next generation needs, which is just pretty much us, okay, is a deeper theology on suffering. I was like, okay, now that's not, that's not what they asked about. But you felt the need to say it to a group of teachers and preachers. And I don't wanna read too much into this woman that I respect, but when she said it, it felt like someone who had been praying a lot. You know what I mean? Some people talk, you're like, you've been dwelling on that. In all, in all sincerity, like you, you've been watching culture, watching the church in America, and this is something that you've gleaned, that we need a deeper theology on suffering. And so that's been kind of spinning in my mind, and it led me to a simple question. Is the Bible more comfortable than I am with a God of peace and a life of suffering? Just simple question, so think about peace. I don't know if it's in our attempt to combat legalism, that we've emphasized the God of love in such a way that we haven't done justice to a Bible riddled with suffering and God's best 
servants that we think are the best all are martyred. They just die. And I think when we over-focus, it's, this is really weird because you can't think about God's love enough. So just handle this thing I'm about to say. I don't know. Never stop thinking about God's love, meditating on God's love. It's deeper, it's better, it's more robust, it has more endurance, and you'll ever be able to fully understand for your life. So that's a fact. But I do wonder if we've done a disservice to a really brutal life. And at times, if it's not easy to come to a church like this one, hear a sermon and go, yeah, but, yeah, but, all this stuff. But to be clear, if the church is struggling in America, especially to address like a real life of suffering, scripture is not afraid at all. It has never once struggled with the tension of a broken life with unexpected turns, chaos, calamity, personal pain that wasn't merited, wasn't deserved, and yet a God who is full of love and grace and peace and is available to you. So we're about to just swim in this mystery. In John 16, 33, same conversation as John 15. Every week I come back to this John 15 passage and I end up finding a scripture in the same conversation, same flow. Jesus says this. He's got some information that he's got to command. The information is, in this world you will have trouble, Jesus said, before being arrested, brutally beaten, and murdered. In this world you will have trouble. Then he gives a command. Take heart. That's a command, exclamation point in my ESV Bible. Take heart, you're gonna have trouble. Just meditate on that, you are. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Okay. And in order to understand this, a lot of times our American brains go, the more I can logically explain the peace of God, the more I can understand it, the more transformation I'll experience. No, let me define it. Here's peace according, and that's a helpful endeavor. But if you're leaning on your own understanding to finally wrap your mind around the peace that God is willing and able to give you in a troubled life, you're gonna fall short. You know how I know? Because Paul literally says in Philippians 4, there is a peace that surpasses your smart, sweet mind. <laughs> you're just eight years into a Vanderbilt degree that I couldn't possibly understand. And Paul would still tell you, there is a peace that surpasses understanding that only comes in prayer. And if you're waiting for me to define it for you, I can't. I cannot. Now, while peace cannot be explained like this deep peace that does surpass our understanding, I do believe it can be experienced. That's the hope, right? Hey, you may not be able to parse it out, put it on a keynote, but you can experience it. Anyone else down to take that deal? Oh, I don't need to understand peace. If I can just have peace, I'm good. Someone's like, how do you got it? I don't know, but I got it, and it's great. I'm cool with that. Well, I want you to have peace too. Okay, so our story today, 1 Kings 19. We're gonna look at a man who experienced more trouble than we ever will. So sorry, you're not gonna be first. He was first in trauma, first in just hard life stuff. And God's presence is going to eventually help him take heart in the midst of some brutal circumstances. We're looking at a guy named Elijah, prophet of God, 
break down prophet real quick. Someone entrusted to speak the words of God to the nation of Israel and the authorities of Israel to help Israel follow God. They're bold. They're kind of maniacs. They're crazy. You ever heard about like John the Baptist eating locusts in the forest? That's a prophet. They're wild guys, man. They're kind of crazy. That's Elijah. Let me get some context before we get into our story that we're just going to meditate on and imagine and feel and smell and see and hear. A guy named Ahab has been announced king of Israel. He is described as the most evil king, more evil than anyone before him. He's got a wife named Jezebel. Anyone heard that name before? She's a real Jezebel. If you grew up Christian, you heard that, and you're like, dang, is that good or bad? It seems bad. I'm reading your eyes. She must, Jezebel, who is, she's evil, huh? Yeah, yeah, she is a Jezebel, <laughs> you know. But Jezebel was actually like so evil, uh, not a good look. Her and Ahab built altars to a false god named Baal. Growing up in a Southern Baptist West Kentucky church, I always said Baal. But I listened to a sermon this week, and he was like, Baal. It was so obnoxious, but I bet it's accurate. <laughs> I know. Jezebel had every prophet of God murdered. So if you didn't believe me about Jezebel, yeah, she was nasty. It's one of the darker periods in Israel's history. A lot of rebellion everyone forsaking the law of God, not a good time. God sends a three-year drought. Elijah predicted that to Ahab himself. And in that three years, okay, three years, it's a long time, Elijah was basically alone, hiding, because everyone wanted to kill him. He was drinking water from a brook, okay? Think about your filter, like your little Brita thing in the fridge. He was drinking water from a brook and ravens were delivering bread and meat to him as his provision. Talk about Postmates. <laughs> the other option for the joke was, I bet he was ravenous. But I don't even know if that's how you use that word. Uh, but ravens in that. Um, all right, so God's been providing. Before we get to chapter 19... Elijah, they come to the end of this three-year drought, and Elijah has what might be the craziest competition in human history. He challenges the prophets of Baal to a, I don't even know what you'd call this challenge. They both build altars, they put a bull on the altar, and they both take turns asking their God to send down fire from heaven and consume the altar, their version of college football or something, you know, like, I got a game to play. So the prophets of Baal, Baal, sorry, Baal, they surround the altar, they pray, they desperately keep praying, nothing's happening, they start cutting themselves to show Baal, they're serious, no noise, no sound, no response, then Elijah prays, actually before Elijah prays, he flexes so hard, he has them dump a ton of water on the altar, they're like, doesn't seem flammable, does it? Does it? Does it? it. God sends down fire, consumes it. This is our happily ever after moment. The end of chapter 18 says this, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Don't forget that sentence for this whole teaching because it ain't going to feel like it. The hand of the Lord is on Elijah. Okay. So at the beginning of 1 Kings 19, this is your, okay, Cue the happily ever after. Oh my goodness, 
The God of Israel is the true God, said Ahab to his wife Jezebel. We must repent. Jezebel, let's tear down all the idols. Let's redirect this nation. It's very clear we're wrong. Oh, thank you, God, for your mercy. No, that's not what's going to happen. Ahab tells Jezebel. Jezebel is angry. She has taken a serious all caps L, and she doesn't like it. So she makes a vow. The storytelling is going so well, but I forgot a detail. Elijah had all the prophets of Baal killed after that showdown for all the evil they brought to the nation of Israel. So they all get murdered, okay, by Elijah. Okay. So after all that, happily ever after moment, repentance? No. Instead, ego, Jezebel, angry, and vows, I will do to Elijah what was just done to the prophets of Baal, or may it happen to me instead. So she's like, he's dying or I'm dying. So Elijah finds himself in a really similar spot, on the run, by himself, in a desolate, lonely, sad place. Okay, here we go. So Elijah, in chapter 19, is in the wilderness. He's already spent three years alone. God has shown his victory, and Elijah's alone again running for his life after all this faithfulness and obedience. And God miraculously shows up, and there he is alone. Okay. So he's sitting under a broom tree. Huh. And he starts talking to God unprompted. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Ain't that the truth? When the math don't add up and you've tried the whole like faith without sight long enough and it still isn't adding up, at some point you just turn to, I must be terrible and this must just not be for me. Let's call it. I mean, Elijah finds himself in a straight up depression. He cannot believe what he has come to. He can't believe, I mean, just picture him sitting under this tree alone, no noise pollution in this day and age, just in the silence being like, this is the loneliest you can possibly be. That's where he's at. It's the sound of a man that is exhausted, scared, and done. An angel appears to him two different times, says, arise and eat, for this journey is too great for you. So the supernatural provision happens, bread and water provided to Elijah, and the angel says what Elijah has basically said. You're right. This is all way too much. Take some of this supernatural provision. It's gonna give you some nourishment to go on your way. After he eats two different times, he travels for 40 days, 40 nights, and he ends up in a cave in the mountains. Now, Picture something like this. The site I got it from is claiming that is actually the cave. I don't know. <laughs> but if it could be the cave, it must look like the cave regardless, right? That's my math. So here you go. There you go. He's in there, okay? Picture him in there. And this brings us to the scene that I want us to visualize. Now, this story is going to happen pretty quickly, and then we're going to meditate on it, okay? So while Elijah is 40-plus days into another bout of loneliness, 
running for his life, feeling afraid and without answers. Circumstances of chaos and calamity. No reward for his obedience and his faithfulness, just a cave. God visits him and he asks a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's just so you know how you know God's about to teach something. When he asks a question, you know he knows the answer to. Whenever he's in the garden, like, Adam and Eve, where are you? I'm nearsighted. I'm not a supernatural God that knows all. Come out. What's he doing? He's letting Adam and Eve know, hey, you're hiding. What happened? Where are you? All right, back to Elijah. Who's more in tune with why Elijah is in a cave alone than God himself, the one that just sent fire down from heaven? So he says, what are you doing here? Listen to Elijah's response because it's actually so sad and so sweet. I've been jealous for the Lord. (laughs) That's what happened. (laughs) I got here because I'm out here for you. I'm here because I'm jealous for you. The people of Israel, all of them, have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. Think about Elijah. He grew up falling in love with the one true God, and he's watched the nation of Israel tear down altars to God and build up altars to false gods. Crazy, man. They've killed your prophets. These are prophets Elijah would have known. So his own people have been murdered. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So it's bad. It's all bad. As someone who can kind of hyperbolize my circumstances, Elijah had no exaggeration in one thing he said. This is plainly the truth of Elijah's life. It's bad. And God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. He calls him out of the cave. As I read the text, it feels like something happens before Elijah actually exits the cave, okay? This is what happens before Elijah can go out to the mount. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains. It broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. I have never watched mountains tear like paper, but that's what happens here. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. I can't imagine much things more scary than an earthquake in a cave. All you hear is rocks falling, and you're like, I'm kind of in a rock right now. (laughs) Is that going to? But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. The Lord's getting real metaphorical with Elijah right now. A lot of chaos and calamity around him, and the Lord's not in it. And after the fire, check this, the sound of a low whisper. And God asked again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah wraps his face in a cloak, and he goes out to the entrance of the cave, and he begins dialoguing with God himself. To condense this next part, 
God promises 7,000 faithful Israelites to a man that thought he was all alone with no Israelite left that still had allegiance to the Lord himself. And God goes, not only are you not alone, there's 7,000 more waiting for you. God promises a prophet that will replace him, a man named Elisha. They have a real father-son type of relationship. So not only is he getting this huge nation of, well, huge, 7,000, pretty small, but 7,000 people that are still faithful, he's also getting what will be a spiritual son to him, someone who will know him well, follow in his footsteps. And he also promises victory and gives hope. All because in the midst of wind and earthquake and fire, Elijah heard the whisper of the Lord. I thought about God's peace in the midst of trouble according to scripture. If you read Psalm 46, it depicts loud war, calamity, chariots, spears, just picture war in like 4,000 BC, how brutal and aggressive it was. And it says that God speaks out over all the chaos and says, be still. I love this because if God wanted to, he could just yell louder. He could just scream. Like he could consume everybody with fire. He could think of some pretty God ways to handle it. And instead, he speaks over chaos and says, be still and know I'm God. In the midst of all this, be still and know I'm God. I thought about Mark 4, I mean the classic. Jesus and the disciples on a boat, a bunch of guys that don't know how to swim. Rain, thunder, lightning, winds, choppy waves, small boat, getting dicey. Jesus asleep, napping. There's no way that boat was comfortable. Disciples panicked. Jesus, you gotta wake up. We're freaking out. Quote from Jesus when he stands up, peace, be still. He speaks over the winds and the waves. Thought about Luke chapter eight, the story of the bleeding woman. I thought about the chaos of a crowd following a rabbi who apparently is going to resurrect a dead person and a dead child nonetheless. And so I thought about just the noise of that moment, the chaos of that moment. And then a, a woman who's been fighting this disease for over a decade, quietly touches Jesus's garment. No one sees it or notices it except for one, Jesus himself, who touched me, as if to communicate, not only can I speak in the chaos, I listen in the chaos, I hear you, I see you, I feel you. There is a God who's present in the chaos, who has an ear for his children in chaos, who is willing to speak and bring peace beyond comprehension in the midst of chaos. And the question is, will we be still and know that? I can't remember the lyrics on the first song, but it was something like, we want your presence. We want it. Please, this is all we want is your presence. And I just wanna speak this to you. His presence is available. It's here. If you want it, it's yours. God is not afraid of silence. He's not afraid of whispering in the midst of chaos. 
If you're anything like me, it's me who's afraid. What a turn of events. Of course, it's me that's scared to sit still and be quiet and trust that a peace that I can't understand, that I cannot articulate, that makes no sense to me, can be mine. Only because of the generosity and the goodness of God himself. But I'm afraid. When I sit quietly, I start hearing noise. Noise of my fear, of my confusion, of my failure, of my desire for control, my lack of understanding, my need to get something done instead of have someone do something for me. It's me that's afraid. What if it's not just like an iPhone soapbox where we're just distracted people? What if we're a little scared, you know? If I sit here long enough, I'm gonna start hoping you actually arrive and bring peace. And I'm, I don't know, I don't know. That's hard to hope for. So the invitation today is to sit in the presence of God, to humble yourself, and to be willing to let go of control. If I had to guess, most of us, if not all of us, are thirsty for a peace that we can't quite articulate. But we're intimidated because we also can't manage to make it ourselves. We can't think our way into this peace. It has to come from somewhere else. But I, I believe God will give it. So we're about to meditate on this story in 1 Kings chapter 19, specifically on verses 9 through 12. If you need a Bible, are our Bibles in the back? Does anyone need a Bible? If you need a physical Bible, if you want to reread that story to meditate on it, anybody? Good? Good? Way to go, everybody. Last, last week it was a lot more than that. Um, also, if you don't have a Bible, take one of ours, take it home with you. But we're going to meditate on this passage. And as you do it, just give yourself permission to give your full attention to this story and then ask God, God, what are you trying to reveal to me about yourself? I'm listening. And then just picture this moment with Elijah on the mount. Father, what do you want to teach me about myself in this moment? What do you want to teach me about the world or my friends or this word? Like, have your way. We're going to have some steps behind me that if you get distracted, if you start getting a little anxious, just reread the steps and come back to focus and don't be hard on yourself. But the aim of this week was for me to talk a lot less, to give time for this exercise. So you're listening to me remind myself, so I'll stop talking. Meditate on 1 Kings 19. And if I were you, I would assume God wants to speak to you, because I think he probably does. All right, love you all.